Under the Helmet. You'll do your thing, all right? Don't be nervous, okay? The show that looks at long-term player value in fantasy football. It's the moment right here. We're going to have to decide what, what type of team we want to be. Building Dynasties each and every week. I don't even know your name. What's your name? Chad Parsons. I'm telling you, man, you're leading the league in hydration. I got a Dynasty team reaping rewards for the next decade. Katie Flower. You may beat me, but you will not outwork me. Tim Torch. There's only one winner, Chad. Find their written and premium audio content at uthdynasty.com. Playing it safe in Dynasty means you're going to lose. Stop talking about it, man. Let's get this going right now. Welcome to Under the Helmet. Look at some long-term player value in fantasy football. Got Katie Flower here in the co-captain chair. I am Chad Parsons, official podcast of UTHDynasty.com. Have a special guest this week, one that I've been following for quite some time on Twitter, but also his site, which is Grinding the Mocks. And it's been out for about three years now. And I'll tell you, February, March, uh, when things really start kicking up and mock drafts are flowing across the industry, that's really when I tune in. And I've, I've actually been referring to it, Benjamin, great to have you on, that I've been referring to it as expected draft position because that's how you list it on the site. And I guess just to start out a little bit of history here, it's a few years ago. I don't even know your background in terms of, are you a hyper fan of the NFL? Is this more of a data project? It's just an interest of you, uh, you know, in terms of tracking, especially January through April, in terms of how that goes. How did this start uh, three years ago? And I know you've had some, some great innovations and, and, and improvements along the way. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on the show. Um, so uh, this is kind of a mix of a data project and a football project. Um, so the way I tell it is, you know, I, I went to college at the University of Pittsburgh and one of my best friends and I were both kind of into football, love the draft. Um, it's kind of what brings football fans together from, you know, people like me who are a Cincinnati Bengals fan where the team's not always so successful and him as a, a Steelers fan where they're always picking pretty late, but we can all come together and have a great time and, and watch the draft. Um, so we were, I was watching the draft with my buddy at his apartment and, you know, you hear come across the screen, you know, oh man, I think that's a reach. And, you know, I, we go, we can always say, Hey, that that's a reach. Um, but that's kind of an opinion. And so him and I are kind of very analytical analytically minded basically. And we kind of had the, the question of, well, how do you know it's a reach? Well, if you only way you can know if a pick is a reach is if it's, you have some expectation. And so we were thinking about, you know, how can we kind of answer this question? Uh, and, you know, it came to mind like, oh, mock drafts are kind of like data. What, I wonder what, what would that look like if we, if I started to collect those. And so that's kind of where the, the project started and began. But yeah, I love the draft. Um, you know, it's the three days, the, the final day is a, a, a tough wall to, to beat through. Um, but yeah, but I love it. It's uh, something that me and my buddy always kind of brings us together. Um, and uh, this has been a fun project for me to do because uh, kind of get my uh, my mindset into the the hive mind, see what people are thinking, how players kind of rise and fall throughout the process. And uh, I'm a data scientist uh, by trade. So some of the uh, data collection stuff and the, the actual kind of modeling that goes on is always really something that drives me and my interest as well. In terms of the driving mock drafts that go in there, you do have a separation. I've heard you uh, on Twitter, I think, as well as other podcasts discuss 
expert versus, I believe, what is it? Expert versus media versus fan. Are those the three main categorizations? And I'm wondering in terms of the weighting there, and obviously a lot of mock drafts might be one round, you know, and some might be two or three rounds. Very rarely do you get seven rounds. So I guess the ancillary question to sort of what you don't have to give away the, you know, the, the secrets, not that anyone's going to probably go behind you and, and do as much uh, data mining as you have done for, for this great site, but go into like, what's that magic elixir in terms of weighting quote unquote experts, you know, those that are considered draft nicks and, and in the field directly versus other sites that I, maybe they actually improve their status over, you know, from 2018, you might've considered them an ancillary source, but now maybe they're a primary source. You know, you don't have to maybe mention ones directly, but just that, you know, how much more weight do, do the, the main and big box resources and analysts get? Yeah. I mean, so the distinction between fan and media and expert, I get that question quite often. And the answer is that it's pretty subjective. Um, and it's kind of just how I think about it. There's not like a rhyme or reason, but kind of the, you know, most people are, I could just could have put in the fan bucket, but if you write for a kind of a mainstream media publication, like a newspaper or something like that, um, or you're kind of have a press credential basically where you're in, you know, the, you work, you kind of cover a team or something like that. I'll put that in the media, the expert are kind of your, your thought leaders, uh, people who uh, do pretty well in the mock draft accuracy contests that exist, like the huddle report. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the way that I like to think about it is kind of similar to what you said is when I first came into this, I had an idea that there, the, the experts were better than the fans. And it, it does, it does parse, it does come out that way that the experts are, are a better, you know, they have stronger signal. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I don't necessarily know who's better than anybody else. So I want to learn myself and kind of trust the data to tell me who are the people who have, you know, long-term success, because they might not be the people you think about. Um, so for me, that's, that's how I think about it. Let's, let's kind of be agnostic as we can until the data leads us to the, the people who we should wait higher in terms of thinking about what we should expect than, than others. And just one connected question to that would be my assumption or my view is the same thing what we do about, oh, certain coaches, certain front offices, certain teams are draft, they're better drafters, but there's a lot of randomness and small sample size of even two, three classes. You're talking about a couple dozen picks, you know, frankly, and it's the factor of, oh, well, if you miss on your first round pick a couple of years in a row or something that, and it might only be the first couple of years, they assume that, you know, that that was a bad class for you, or you're not a good drafter, but I'm sure you kind of look at it with analysts the same way, which is you might be, you know, if you were technically ranking accuracy across all of the sources that you have, someone that finishes first or second one year might finish a hundredth, you know, the next year. And it really is that small sample size of you got a little lucky, you know, almost like, you know, a, a, a Cinderella in March Madness winning one game, you know, a 15 seed winning one game. That's a lot different than you go all the way, you know, to, you know, winning four or five games in a row. Winning one game is a very small sample size, just like you're saying. I mean, maybe being an elite uh, prognosticator of what's going to happen in the draft one year. I think there's a, probably a lot of fuzziness around the edges and white noise when you think multiple years and someone actually categorically is better at this randomized game of numbers and, and players than somebody else. For sure. I mean, so that's why I believe in the wisdom of crowds. And so, you know, my background initially is in economics and the idea is that the, the crowd will in the long run do better than any, mostly better than any one individual. There are some people who have skill and, you know, for example, 
I think with the pandemic this past year made it a little bit harder. There were some analysts who were really smart and really, really good at predicting the draft in the past who have really strong track records who didn't do well last year. Um, you know, like um, Evan Silva of Established the Run is kind of like a legend in fantasy football analysis. Normally has a really strong mock draft. In 2020, not as strong as he usually is. Uh, ben Standig, who's a, here at DC local as well, who's a, a beat writer, but also an expert in terms of mock drafts. Um, you know, he also had a down year. And you know, to be honest, my data also had a down year because I was upweighting their predictions too. Um, you know, nothing against them. Like you said, it's really hard. Um, but ultimately, you know, you just want to be a little bit less uh, worse than everybody else. And so the you're never going to be perfect. You just kind of want to be able to say that within a, a certain level of, um, you know, certainty that, that we have a, a kind of expected range of where a player is going to go. Don't necessarily be, be so wed to being exactly right. You just kind of want to be within spitting range of some of these picks. Uh, if you're trying like me to just predict where players might go. Um, but yeah, ultimately the, the wisdom of the crowd and then the kind of large largest of the data set was kind of the thing that would help the most because a lot of first round mock drafts, not as many people go deep, but um, for ones that do go deep, you kind of try to build a sample size that you feel good about. And so that's why I collect data throughout the whole year so that um, we can kind of build up a prior for where we expect some of these players to go and build up a decent amount of uh, sample size so that we have something that we can at least generalize from a little bit. I absolutely love this site. And unlike Chad, uh, who has followed you for a couple years, I just followed you on Twitter today and I will, I've bookmarked this site. Can't wait to try it out and use it even more. This is fantastic. My question, do you keep stats on the accuracy, like privately just for yourself? And if so, do you notice a uh, better accuracy range after the combine and after free agency? Um, so I, I do track how well I do at the end of the year. I haven't done as much of a deep dive on kind of the change overall in terms of the accuracy. It's something that I'll probably work on this summer as a side project a little bit, just to kind of look out for my own edification for things that I'm working on. Um, I've, I, th I think there is a bit of a reshuffling of the deck, so to speak, that occurs. There's also just a lot of noise in terms of what prospects are getting noticed. I think this year, the pro days kind of have amplified some things. Um, there's also kind of a lack of data this year. Um, in terms of how college football was played, that um, a lot of data that we have this year is, you know, normally college football data is pretty censored because it's a small sample. Football is a small sample size game. Um, and there's a lot of unevenness in terms of competition across college football. But this year, even more so because we didn't get the interconference play. Um, and so for some players, we didn't even have any data at all for, for a lot of these opt-outs. And so there's a mixture of the censored data that we have this year and uh, the missing data that we have this year that make player evaluation very complicated. But yeah, I think the combine mostly is kind of a reshuffling of the deck. Hopefully you're identifying players who maybe you didn't think were as athletic as they were. Hopefully we're not double counting players who we, we already kind of knew from watching the tape um, had like top level athleticism. So, you know, the mock draft marketplace tends to do some weird um, reshufflings of the deck I had I did some research that I published on my blog, I think last year after the combine, looking at kind of pre-combine and post-combine ADP, just kind of two weeks pre and post. And the relationship um, between players that had, you know, what we would call like a excellent um, relative athletic score, which is the Kent Lee Platy measure for kind of uh, composite measure for athleticism, 
um, they tended to benefit more and the people who did really poorly uh, tended to get punished and then everybody else in between just kind of stayed where they were. So I thought there's a lot of noise. There's a bit of a reshuffling of some of the cards, but in terms of accuracy, um, I don't think overall the, the composite metric that I have, the expected draft position is, I would guess that just because of the amount of new, like full information that you have on what the market is telling you that ideally you'd think that that would be best closer to the draft, but there is a lot of noise. So I haven't tested it yet, but uh, when I do, um, we'll see what it has to say. But my guess is that more information is better just from a theory standpoint. Yeah. And, and you have basically an environment where it's trailing data, right? I mean, so what you have loaded and, and completely structured into the system is, you know, it doesn't include what happened yesterday, today, and, you know, maybe even the end of last week. I mean, you really have to check that that updated date. And you saw also have to go back because it might include a lot of mock drafts that were three, five, seven days before that. And so, the, the fact that this is a weird year and a tough one because we had no combine last year, we had the combine and then pro days got shut down largely, but we still had that combine central point. Now it is, it seems like for me every day, you know, Monday through Friday, I'm combing through trying to find, you know, what's official, unofficial, you know, and, and updating along the way because draft position, the, the physical profile, all these things are are, are parts of, of the profile and part of the puzzle pieces. I was going to ask you about the sample size part because one guy, uh, and specifically this happened, I, I swear I looked at it yesterday or the day before, yeah. and Tommy Trimble at tight end is probably the most glaring example I saw that highlights my, my question and my point about sample size because I saw he was in like the 160s or 70s or something, which I think is probably closer to the truth. Yet you see the small sample size of, I mean, again, not a first round guy. I, I feel a lot more confident. I'm sure you do as well in the first round or two because you have, uh, you know, hundreds of mock drafts uh, weighted in, into the system. But yeah, when you see something that's double digits and especially, you know, 50, 40, 30, that it could be that could be a wide range of time period. If, if I'm assuming correctly, it could also include, uh, you know, just just one random person potentially swaying it a lot more than if you see 800, 900 mock drafts for typical round one guys. Um, so Tommy Trimble is one that I, I would think is an example where when you get low sample size, have a little bit more pause and know that the wide range of maybe what they're capable of or at least what they're being mocked is is a lot broader than somebody that has 200, 300. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that I can think of a couple more guys who I saw and when I when I published the data because I always look at the data before I publish. I think everyone should. And you know, I had a guy like Frank Darby or something like that showing up really high who is not. Um, and then I had a, a similar deal I think with uh, Justin Hilliard, who's a linebacker from Ohio State, showing up really high. And yeah, that's why I put the sample size there. I mean, there's a, a caveat emptor with all of this that whenever you see a metric, um, you know, when I was in grad school, I had a professor who said you know, the most important thing about any metric is the denominator, right? So you always need to know, it's really easy to count, uh, you know, what the, like a sack rate, for example, right? So we can always count sacks, but what's it out of? That can artificially deflate or inflate the number. Um, so yeah, always pay attention to the sample size. That's why I put that there as well. And you can kind of see sometimes some of the players with uh, small numbers of observations tend to have this kind of very, uh, you know, spiky type of uh, curve. And so you're looking for guys that have way more of a smooth curve uh, so that you kind of know that there's the, the proper kind of sample size so you can kind of infer some stuff. But yeah, I think right now, nothing is set in stone. Things are changing quite often. Um, you know, the mock drafts that, I'm, that are uh, being kind of uh, 
ingested right now are going to be weighted way less at the end of the day um, when the two weeks from now than two weeks from now. Um, and in re- reality, for the most part, the weightings really don't get super high until the week of the draft. Um, so those ones take into, I get to take into account way more right now. There's a lot of just kind of, you still, there's a lot of flux, um, uh, because I think there's a lot of flux in this class overall. People are still, people really, I think, haven't come around to, uh, kind of a consensus yet really of where players are supposed to go, except for the top two picks. Or at so. least, or at least post combine, uh, sorry, post pro day, which is this week. And, you know, there, I think there's a few, but not really many relevant ones beyond this week. So I would imagine you finish this week, you get maybe one more week to let mock drafts more, you know, more populate the system. And then, you know, you'll still have a couple weeks before the draft. And that will probably be one of those significant up- updates where a lot of people are going to have maybe a bigger consensus than they would now. Um, I wanted to ask because you know, the date is as of Monday of this week, we're recording on a Tuesday night. And that is a couple days removed from the couple of trades that impacted the top 12 with the 49ers uh, moving way up. And then you had the Eagles also making a move with the Dolphins. And that probably affects most uh, the quarterbacks. Uh, is that something that actually there were mock drafts over the weekend that were part of this update? Or is that still a trailing part that you're seeing? Not you don't think just by I eyeing it, you know, and having the experience you do that that's not really reflected in it yet. Um, so I would say that the, this trade, I tried to get together as much information as possible to kind of see what the fallout is. And I think that the marketplace has actually reacted much quicker than I would normally think. Um, you know, I, I feel pretty good about kind of the, how everything has shaked out. You know, there's a lot of, of, uh, kind of, prognostication going on between the insiders who think that Mac Jones is going to be that selection for a number of reasons, or, um, you know, people who, who think that it could be Trey Lance for a number of reasons. Um, and so in terms of the mock draft data, the way it's shook out so far is that Trey Lance is, is supplanting Justin Fields as the third ranked quarterback in the class in terms of expected draft position. Um, and so Mac uh, Jones is kind of trailing behind a little bit. Normally, yeah, I think when you see an event like this, it takes a while for things to show up in the data. But I think because of the high profile nature of this, there's just been a lot. Uh, and I tried to collect as much data as possible. So maybe there's like an overreaction going on here. So uh, there's a little bit of a kind of move by me to try to collect as much uh, information as possible to see what the impact was of this on, uh, on, the, on the leaderboard. Uh, but yeah, I think that the market has reacted pretty strongly to this. Um, you know, ultimately I'm very, I'm, I'm as confused as anybody by what's going on with Justin Fields. Um, I'm in the Justin Fields did nothing wrong camp, to be honest with you. Um, as a player, I think he's, his case is really strong for even being in the, in line for two. the number one pick. Yeah, two, um, one, so. yeah. And he just had his pro day today. So that's going to be something that takes a few days and that trailing that we talked about because he ran in the four fours, you know, by, by the early reports and obviously he can throw the ball out of the stadium. So, I mean, that's going to be one that, and, and the other thing at the quarterback position that, I mean, Mac Jones, like I was looking back at some of the mock drafts that, you know, were going through the, some of the data points you have for the season, 
but it seems like it's been this this i mean katie and i had this this mock draft and this discussion about mac jones specifically about part of a of a draft plan for dynasty teams because it seems like he was just having this momentum momentum if four quarterbacks go high the pressure on any team that wants a quarterback for the next guy and that's how you get additional players in the first round and mac jones has gone from i mean i think every time i've i've seen your updates he's gone up and it seems like 13.8 as he sits now is still on probably the low end because now you have the 49ers. I always thought the 49ers at 12 were sort of that anchor point. And the fact that they moved up, it seems like he, he's even more likely than ever to go in the top 10 or so. Yeah. Um, you know, the um, every year has been unprecedented. Oh, you know, Baker Mayfield. Oh, we had no clue he was going to be the number one pick. Oh, Kyler Murray from nowhere. Joe Burrow from nowhere. Zach Wilson, Mac Jones from nowhere. I think we just kind of have come to expect that if we see that kind of one year of kind of hyper uh, production, that um, the league is is willing to take a gamble on that, especially a quarterback. Um, in the past, I felt better about, um, you know, the the number of quarterbacks in the first round. You know, in 20, um, 2019, I kind of got bit a little bit um, with, uh, Drew Locke, who I had as a first round expected draft position quarterback, um, thinking that the crowd thought that the Broncos would select him in round one. And then it turned out that no one liked him that much. So they were smart enough to wait till the second round to draft him. And so for a while I was thinking, well, is like, is that the deal with Mac Jones? And then you look at the quarterbacks this year and how high they're going. I think that just the overall consensus is that this is a much higher quality quarterback class and that there's a feeling that the difference between Mac Jones and Kyle Trask, who's kind of the next quarterback um, in my data is large enough that warrants him kind of going, um, going much higher than maybe we would have thought of um, earlier in the process. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the top five could be all quarterbacks theoretically. I'm not sure if I see that happening as a Bengals fan, they, they really haven't done that much trade downs in the first round. They tend to be a sit and select team. I would I would love to see them take that course of action because I think that they they could use a lot more draft capital to help build up the roster. Um, but yeah, five quarterbacks. I would be really surprised, but um, which would be really exciting, um, and and that would definitely kind of uh, shore up the data a little bit more. Um, as as the I think that there I'm not sure there'll be a lot of movement for the draft. Um, so but we'll see what happens. We said that with three too, <laughs> but did. yeah, the Falcons are another one at four where, you know, Matt Ryan's situation and, and he's got a lot of dead cap, you know, but we've seen quarterbacks moved with dead cap, uh, you know, over, you know, when we think it's not possible this off season, but they're going to be another one that, Hey, you want QB four, you got to come up to that spot, you know, and you mentioned Cincinnati at five, it almost feels like if they're not going to go quarterback, then they kind of need to get out of there. I mean, yes, they may love Kyle Pitts. They may love Jamar chase, you know, someone like that, but I mean, you can get a haul and we saw what, you know, three got and heck four might get 85% of that, you know, because they might be getting QB two or three on their board as QB four and at one Oh four. Um, so that's another point. Uh, Katie, do you have a, you have a question following up on that? Sure. So on the prospect trends tab, you can compare two prospects. And what I, what is so cool is you've got Trevor Lawrence who from April of 2020 to April of 2021 or late March of 2021, he's been just an even straight at the one the entire time. And then you got somebody like Mac Jones who started off, you know, in the fifties and now he's up 13.8. 
Is there a trend? Uh, can you figure out the why when you see either a fast riser or a fast sinker? Um, can, can your data kind of help pinpoint the why? And is one better or worse or are they both equally bad? Um, so I try not to put a normative spin on it um, because players get selected above or below their expected draft position all the time. Um, you know, it's hard to say. I would say that the why is always really hard. I mean, as someone, like I said, who comes from economics, you know, causality is something that we think about a lot in social science and statistics. And so I think I find it very hard to say that we could, with a kind of very strong case, say that we could use the data to tell why something is happening. But I think it's descriptive sometimes of, uh, like I said, sometimes it's not a player's fault. I mean, like Justin Fields, like I think Justin Fields has done nothing wrong. Like I said it before, like I'm, I'm Justin Fields, did nothing wrong. I've got this, that's my team. Um, so sometimes, you know, there's a reshuffling of the deck in terms of what the perception of players is. And so I think that's sometimes what this is more than anything else. Um, and like I said, the mock draft uh, community can be kind of fickle about how they feel about that. So for example, you know, there's a player like Micah Parsons, a linebacker from Penn state who started off the year in the kind of top five, 10 range kind of, fell out of grace a little bit. And now I'm seeing him back up in the top 10 again. So sometimes it's just a measure of sentiment. Um, I'm not sure necessarily it means a whole lot. The idea for me is to try to be as correlated to actual draft position as possible. So for the most part, when I'm comparing, you know, players that do really well um, in the draft versus kind of where they, where they went versus where I expected them to go, it's mostly kind of the same in terms of production overall. Uh, because my measures is so correlated to actual draft position. Um, so um, the wide receiver I, position is, is one that I, I really am fascinated by because it seems like all the talk in January was, oh, we've got five, maybe six going in the first round. And I've been seeing that backed off, you know, a lot in your data. And, and as we've gone through, it seems like a lot of the big box uh, shows have been not really saying it in that framing, you know, over the last four to six weeks as much. And a couple of observations or storylines within that position that I wanted to ask you about is the one that I'm not surprised by is the Jalen Waddle over Devonta Smith. And that certainly wasn't the case. You really had it chase and Smith in some ordering. And they both, I believe had top five, six uh, expected draft positions. And we've seen Smith fade to outside the top 10 Waddle overtake him. And one of my theories on that is so Smith, not having a pro day, out of sight, out of mind a little bit with some of these mock drafts, if I were thinking about it. And the fact that, you know, he comes out and basically just says 170, you know, that he weighs and it's not really a, you didn't step on a scale. You didn't run a 40. A lot of these guys are, you know, so that's part of it. And then the other part is Jalen Waddle. We know he's one of the fastest guys in college football. We've seen it with Will Fuller and other guys that they're going to vault up you know, speed kills. And a lot of times you see that in round one with wide receivers. Um, do you think I'm onto something in terms of both of those kind of storylines contributing to this? And could you even see over the next six weeks an even bigger spread between Waddle and Smith? Um, yeah, I, I think you're right in terms of the storyline. I think there's also the, you know, Waddle had the injury this year. And so uh, there's a sense, I think, of a lot of this kind of is tied to the college football season to a certain point. Um, and, and I see this a lot with some analysts where I think they kind of will mock players early, very early on in the process based off of sometimes reputation or just watching them on TV. And then when they actually get around to watching the tape, they kind of change their, their tune a little bit. 
Um, and that's a good thing. Like I'm, I'm a fan of, um, you know, changing your prior when you have better information. I just kind of wish they wouldn't sink so hard into some of their priors early on. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. You know, the Devonte Smith thing, I think there, there is some uncertainty around his physical profile. I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a you know, a person who analyzes the human body. So I'll take them for what they have to say about it. Um, but yeah, I think, I think we're almost in, coming into the same point with Devonte Smith that we were just in fields. And to me, I think, I think Devonte Smith is a, a really good player. I think we're, we're getting to the point where we're, we were over maybe overrating him before and now we're in danger of underrating him to a, to a certain extent. Um, Jalen Waddle, you know, I think he's having kind of a similar process in some ways to Henry Ruggs where everyone was like, Oh yeah, Jerry Judy, um, wide receiver one for Alabama. That's the guy you watch. Um, he was kind of the, the one with more accolades last year and Ruggs ended up finishing as wide receiver three and expected draft position, but he had the last laugh because he was selected first. Um, and so one of the things that the mock drafts don't necessarily always do too well is to put themselves in the place of the general manager. Um, so a team like the Raiders has a reputation for drafting players a lot earlier than their expected draft position. Going that's rogue. why going rogue and getting, yeah. getting their guys. Yeah. yeah. They're hard to, they were hard to pick for the Seahawks have been hard to, to kind of pinpoint as well. The dolphins to a certain extent, but there's some teams that kind of predictably um, sometimes it's hard to pick the right guy. Um, the chiefs are up there as well uh, as terms of, Hey, they chase guys. It's their guy. They don't necessarily care uh, when the guy was going to be selected. They like him and they're going to pick him. Um, so for uh, Waddle this year, I mean, the Dolphins have been kind of a team that uh, have been hard for me to sometimes pin down, except for the quarterback last year. So, you know, I think there's a decent shot that you come to pick six. And if, if Kyle Pitts is there, um, maybe they consider him. But I think there's a decent chance that they want a wide receiver specifically, that they could like Waddle um, over Devontae Smith um, for any number of reasons. And that's the storyline that I keep thinking about on why you proactively, we typically don't see, I mean, we see sometimes trading to two, but the fact that we saw the 49ers trade to three, it's relatively unprecedented this early, you know, especially when there still is, as you mentioned, some ambiguity on who's going one and two to some degree. I mean, probably more two than one. And then, but I think the dialogue of what you just said, which is if they're sitting at 12, they very much could get squeezed out of Pitts, Waddle and Smith. Like that's a realistic based on looking at expected draft position possibility that all three are gone. And if those three are their guys and there's a giant divide in chasm right now for the other wide receivers. And that's the other observation is it seems like wide receiver four and beyond it's, it's the wild West. It's all over the place. And it feels like there's a lot to gain or lose because we still have some out there with Bateman, uh, Terrace Marshall, et cetera, that have not worked out. So that's going to be a, a giant variable here closing down the stretch. But one guy that I've been monitoring and he just had his pro day was Rondell Moore, but he comes in at five, seven and he was in that 25, 30, 32, you know, sort of range. And now he's fading out to the mid second. And that feels like it's going to maintain. It feels like there's very small margins here. Now, yes, he's a burner and he may end up going in round one as one of those picks that the data doesn't really predict. You know, he might end up going in the final five picks or something of the round, but it seems like there's so many wide receivers. That's the one thing that got me. And you hear this on the, the big box sites as well that, you know, that, oh, I have 15 guys with, with top 100 grades, you know, or, or, or round two, uh, day two or better grades. And that's actually what, what comes out here in the data. I mean, you've got 
16 with around 100 or 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 better. And it just feels like there's going to be a lot of latitude on trying to get the order right, even though you might have this, you know, uh, you know, all but one in the top 100 that's actually correct. There might be a rogue pick or two, but yet the the massaging of that those numbers between who goes 40 and who goes 90, it, it really is going to come down to those NFL teams because it's a very deep class. Definitely. I mean, I think it's dangerous to say, you know, hey, these are the only three guys. I mean, we look at last year as just an example where, you know, if I think if, if you if I told you, you know, after the draft that Justin Jefferson would have been the best wide receiver of the bunch selected in the first round, I might have believed you, but I probably would have laughed and been like, nah. No, it's going to be CD lamb, but, you know, so I think we, we need to be, I think teams need to be a little bit more um, humble in some ways about their ability to predict who the best player is. And sometimes there's a lot of group think, and that's something that's kind of hard to, to kind of, to unravel, but I do my best with the data. So um, to be honest, I, th- I think that this year for a while, I was seeing a, quite a more than a few wide receivers and let's just classify Kyle Pitts as like a wide receiver for this argument's sake. So that would be four kind of receiving option guys in the first round, but then the first round only has 32 picks. So there's only so many spots for guys. And so you have five quarterbacks when there's normally maybe three. So you've lost two spots running back this year. I had zero running backs projected to go in the first round last year that ended up not being the case with Clyde Edwards, Alaire going 32nd, but I have potentially two or maybe even maybe two running backs that could go in the first round this year, or at least borderline. So there just kind of ends up being not enough spots for guys. And with the offensive linemen that are coming out this year that are very well regarded and the defensive group and the cornerbacks, like they're just some who I think are going to flow over into the second round who are still worthy of being potential first round players. There just aren't enough slots for them. So a guy like Rashad Bateman, who, um, you know, at some point was being mocked in the first round. Now I'm seeing a little bit more of a signal towards second. I'm, I think that's kind of going to be where he ends up sometime in the late first round, even though I think he's also worthy of, of a kind of a, I had him mocked to the Patriots at pick, was it 14 or 15 in my football outsiders mock draft that I did last month. I think that could be a place where he goes. If the, if the wide receivers um, kind of had gone in a more in the order that I thought that they had gone earlier before this big trade. And have you ever, whether it's wide receiver position or running back or any of them, have you ever tried to correlate fast risers in mock drafts versus what actually happens in the NFL draft versus who becomes a bust. So for example, if a wide receiver burns up the board in the, in the last month of the process and ends up a first round draft pick, whereas just a couple months ago, he was projected as a, as a uh, round three or round four guy, does he have a more likely chance of busting in the NFL or do you not even look at that kind of data? I haven't done that yet, mostly because you really need three years worth of data or more to know about that. Um, There's so much of early career production. If I just said, you know, hey, like just use this year's data to analyze last year's class, it's not going to tell the whole story of their career. So um, this offseason, I'm going to do a kind of retrospective a little bit on the 2018 class because we have three years worth of data. So I haven't done that yet. I'm kind of fully focused on this year's class, but I am interested in kind of looking at um, you know, is there kind of a threshold that we can look at at the very end of the draft around expected draft position, where if guys go higher than expected by a lot, by like multiple standard deviations, for example, um, 
is there some signal there that tells us that that's something that we should avoid? Um, so not yet, um, but uh, it's something I hope to do in the off season when I have a little more time. Is there a wide receiver in the, in the pack class that whether you're seeing a little signal right now, you know, someone's kind of inching up, maybe they're, you know, they were out in the one fifties or two hundreds and now they're, you know, getting closer and closer to day two. Is there a wide receiver that you kind of see this drum beat, you know, and uh, monorail monorail, you know, that, that this momentum going forward it, that you think it could absolutely over the last three weeks perpetuate. And we're going to see, you know, that continue now, whether it happens in the draft or not, but you could see someone continue that where they go 10, 15, 20 spots, and, and it just keeps going with more mock drafts. Is there, is there a player that when I'm describing that, that you're thinking of from the last couple of updates and you, you're kind of seeing this, this momentum and this pattern continuing? I mean, I could think of a couple guys, um, you know, right now I think Dynami Brown, from North Carolina is uh, somebody I think people are kind of uh, infatuated with. I think, I think he could rise quite a bit in mock drafts going forward. I think a lot of people have a lot of love for him. He's already pretty um, high. I mean, yeah. he was out, he was out in day three right now. He's at 67. I mean, that, he's already moved quite a bit, but you're saying, I mean, he could close the gap and maybe be top 50 plus. Yeah. I think there's potential there. Um, yeah. In terms of uh, guys who, you know, I, th- I think have a little bit of that potential, um, it's hard to tell. There's so many wide receivers. Um, I haven't looked too deeply at any of them individually. I think that could really go much higher. But to me, going from in the kind of, I think he could be a second round type of player. You know, I think Elijah Moore is kind of experiencing a bit of a rise again. There were some people early in the process who thought he could be, um, I think Lance Zerline, who I, I, I admire quite a bit in terms of draft analysis, um, had him at, at one point going in the at 19 to Washington. I don't know if Elijah Moore reaches first round status, but I think that he's kind of hitting to a point where he's going to be solidly second round. So yeah, it's hard to pay attention to so many of the guys and so much stuff is going up and down in terms of sample size. But yeah, right now those are two guys who I see quite a bit as ones that I think have room to grow in terms of, um, in terms of that uh, expected draft position. Okay. And for some, this is a negative sort of view and feel and spidey senses here, but the running back class, it has a little without Ezekiel Elliott in there, but like it has a 2016 vibe where we saw a ton of day three guys like that. And it feels dicey. And what I've been telling folks is, you know, they're doing, if they're doing drafts now uh, for their leagues that, have a lot of pause, you know, because, you know, you, Trey Sermon did have a good workout today. So I think he's probably going to be okay in terms of that day two projection. But you get a lot of others, like so a lot of people like Ramondre Stevenson, sort of as a projection guy. But Chuba Hubbard's a main one that I'm watching. And Jermar Jefferson's another one where if you end up drifting to day three, and both of them right now, I think are more likely to go there than round, round, two, round three by the data that it's really risky because the numbers and probabilities fall off in that zone. And both of them still have their pro day to go, but it feels like they got a long way to go because both of them are rarely mentioned. And I'm actually surprised uh, to some degree that there's as many mock drafts as there are for those two guys who I really like them as prospects, but that's the thing with, with kind of what we do is you have to kind of separate yourself sometimes and say, well, here's what the, the mock draft data is. Could they surprise? Absolutely. But you have to take a, a very honest approach to they're more likely to go around four and maybe again with a, a class that people don't view as very good, they could drift around five and it, you could still like them. And I, I'm, I'm trying to doing that on my own, you know, with Rondell Moore, love the player, but 
round two with wide receivers is a lot different than round one. And you sort of have to have that gauge, that safety switch, you know, on the side, that pin that stays in there and says, I can't get too overzealous. Um, I don't know if you have any particular thoughts on Hubbard or, or Jefferson, um, but those are the ones that I'm really that that round three versus round four or five line for running back. I think there's going to be one or two winners, maybe, and the rest are going to be losers, unfortunately. Yeah, last year was kind of a surprising year for running backs. You know, you had Clyde Edwards Hilaire go at 32 when I thought he was kind of more of a second round player. You know, you had um, I know Dylan guys and Gibson who, were the surprises yeah. that maybe a lot of people didn't have them on day two and they solidly went so in the top 65. Yeah, he was one of them. Uh, another guy was um, uh, Vaughn, Keyshawn Vaughn, who got drafted by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who I thought was I was surprised by as well. So every now and then there's some prizes doesn't get, doesn't necessarily, uh, I mean, and AJ Dillon too. Um, so last year was kind of a surprise for the running back class. Yeah. I don't know as much about those late guys for the, for the running backs. Um, I think that there's a lot of uncertainty there. It only has about 34, you know, it's something in the thirties, which we talked, we talked about, you know, a few minutes ago that that is, that is really low sample when you see the hundreds and hundreds for some players. So I would imagine I mean, so let me just ask you, just to go back so we know that if someone has 20s or 30s, that could include data, again, weighted less so, but that's going to put a lot of emphasis, like we mentioned with Tommy Trimble, on a very select few because that's all you might have of drafts that go out four, five, six rounds over the last even couple weeks. I'm sure the sample size is not huge for mock drafts that go all the way, 255. So um, that would be one thing. And the other thing would be you might be including with some of these players like Jermar Jefferson, uh, where they have more waiting for drafts back in January, right? That that you just don't have enough data. And so to supply that, you have to run your 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 similar formulas and putting everything together. Yeah, yeah. Sample size is a huge problem. And like I said, like, you know, it's hard to make a lot of the data right now, except for the narrative to me. Um, and so, so the way I think about it is right now, we're kind of getting a sense of throughout this project or throughout this process really about what the range of likely outcomes could be. And so I think for the small sample guys, we just kind of got to maybe think about what the expected range is and just kind of, uh, you know, kind of back of the envelope, think of it as a, a little bit larger. Um, so um yeah, it's, it's, I wouldn't necessarily have a lot to say about Jamar Jefferson or, or any of these running backs really at the moment, just because I haven't, I haven't really paid as much attention to the, to the late round ones. Um, so, but yeah, there's so many of them. The position is so replaceable in the NFL. Some of those guys will get drafted. I mean, and then you can have guys like James Robinson who's kind of a unicorn last year who kind of pops up out of relative obscurity. So um yeah, I haven't really clued in as much on the running backs except for the top three where kind of a lot of the juice is. So my next question, do you ever look at history to determine if some of these results are even realistic? So I'm going to use one example. In round five of this year's draft, you've got 12 wide receivers mocked in round five. That's never happened. We had eight in 2020. And since the year 2000, we also had in 2001, we had seven. So is 12 really realistic or are some of those guys more than likely going to go in round six or seven rather than all go in round five? Do you ever look at hist historical data at that draft position of that position? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. 
I, I agree. I think that's probably something that I could do after the fact to kind of renormalize things based off of some of the historic results. And like I said, you shouldn't be a slave to this data. Like just like you need context for sample size. Like that's something else that is, is something that, you know, you should pay attention to, you know, records get broken, but you're right. Like it's probably unrealistic. Um, and so I think right now it's a, probably a function of you know, the data, the small sample size. And so some of that will kind of, as I get more data, wash itself out. And so this next month will be key for that. And that's kind of where a lot of the data will get weighted toward. So some guys will get weighted down. Some guys will get weighted up. Um, so yeah, it, it's kind of a, uh, it's kind of rough to say, but yeah, it's something that I want to touch on in the off season. Uh, the other thing that we haven't highlighted yet, which is actually one of my favorites. And to be fair, I don't really start doing it until the the couple weeks, as you mentioned, when we get to uh, the green light zone uh, before the NFL draft is your uh, team breakdowns, uh, the, the, the team mock draft charts. I really love it because what, you know, when we start talking on our live shows about the draft, it's looking at, I almost look at it as expected players, you know, at each position to go, if that's round one and then resetting, because I know you do a lot of heavy lifting updates uh, Thursday into Friday, you know, that that actually updates uh, going into to day two. And what I love is you go to these charts and it specifically gives you a breakdown of the players, you know, in the breakdown, you could actually look at the ratios there of what's most likely. And it gives a positional breakdown as well for each team. You know, if you're looking at round one or round two, obviously that data gets a little uh, more fuzzy, you know, as you go out, but round one, especially is, 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 is fun because you can actually see, Oh, you know, this projects, you know, 40, 50% chance for a certain position. Uh, there may be a little bit of ambiguity on who at that position. Um, but that's one of my favorite things that, that you have built into uh, that you can, again, do all sorts of data filtering. And that honestly, uh, besides the expected draft position, that's my favorite part of the whole site. Um, is there any additional info that you would, you would tell folks that, that are going to check it out that uh, central to the, the team mock draft charts, especially for teams that have, uh, uh, sorry, for fans that are f tracking their, their team and what might happen beyond, you know, just one random mock draft they see on, 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 on a site where you get all the data here. Yeah. I think, you know, the way I think about those charts is that they're kind of just, uh, I just made them for fun, but I think that there is some value potentially in kind of just doing a bubble up on the positional needs um, for some teams, there's kind of a, like a real strong consensus around what position they're going to target. But for other teams, there isn't. And that can give you a kind of a feel of, you know, last year, for example, Minnesota, you know, I think that a lot of people had wide receiver as, an, as a need for them, offensive tackle as a need for them, cornerback as a need for them. And those were all positions they addressed, you know, fairly early on in the draft. And lucky for me is that for them as a good example, because Minnesota is a team that I really like when it comes to the draft. They tend to draft players either on expected draft position or at a discount um, quite often. And so that's sometimes where when I'm making my own mock draft, which I did last year for football outsiders, and I, I should be doing that again this year. Um, I try to put it all together in terms of which players are being mocked in that area. And then for that team, what are their needs based off of the mock draft data? And then looking back at some of the historical data, how have those decision makers tended to fare in terms of selecting players above or below expectation? But yeah, I look at that when I think about what, what positions teams are going to target sometimes in the first round, but also if they don't target that in the first round, that can give some signal about what they might target later on. 
Yeah, my favorite is when you see teams that go against the grain and it's not a need pretty much at all. Um, and what I think is that means they're finding a lot of equity with that player on their board. You know, if they're sitting at 19 and they have a top 10 player on their board, they're just going to, you know, the good teams, in my opinion, take that player independent, you know, and I, I think that's the way Dallas felt last year where we don't have a wide receiver need, but we think CD lamb is top X on our board. Let's not go down, you know, significantly and drop tiers to get our quote unquote need. And it seems like something, again, I have tracked it uh, probably less than you have, uh, but my general observation looking at team needs and then tracking that as we go through, especially the first three rounds is typically you see most teams get two of their top three needs in the first three rounds. Now that leaves some wiggle room with, with another pick and maybe a team has more than that, but you typically see it largely be consensus okay, we're going to fill needs within reason. We're going to put those puzzle pieces together, but it's the rogue ones that I find the most interest in it, especially when it's at the skill positions. Sometimes you see that, you know, like the Packers when they took Jordan Love, for example, backfilling, and a lot of people had, had ire about that, that they got nothing from that. And they say they got nothing from AJ Dillon in year one. And, you know, what a waste. And it was a team that was pretty close to, to doing big things. But, um, but that's always what catches my eye the most. I remember the, the saints did that trading up for Alvin Kamara uh, years ago when they technically didn't have much of a need at that position. So those are always the things that, that I look for that, you know, especially when you have this data, you know, of like, you know, it, it wasn't even a, of the top three or four positions. And like you said, it correlates pretty heavily to if you saw sites that have the, the team need, and they have the graphic with with two, three, four positions. When a team deviates from that, especially early in the draft, I view that as a bullish sign for for how they had them scouted and graded. Yeah, um, you know, I like to do, like I said earlier, with the mock draft accuracy. I like the data to tell me what I'm seeing. I'm not a football expert. I never played football in my life. My mom wouldn't let me. But um, so here. you know, yeah. Um, so you know. Uh, yeah, I don't know what I'm looking at. That's why I grind the mocks and I don't grind the tape. So, you know, to me, when, when I'm, when I'm looking at the, the data and the team needs, you know, I try to let that tell me something, but I don't let it be, I don't let my, I don't let my, uh, my model be a slave to that, you know? So for example, uh, ESPN last year piloted a metric they called ESPN draft predictor, you know, very, it's the same acronym that I use. Um, so, but the, you know, obviously they're, they're a big, they're a big site out there. Um, and so Brian Burke, who's kind of a, a hero in football analytics, had a, a similar kind of model to sort of what I've done back in his days on his advanced football analytics website. And he uses big board data, mock draft data, and then also because he works at ESPN, the Scouts Inc. team needs. And so his model tends to be a little bit more, um, you know, pigeonholing, I guess, certain teams and certain players in certain places based off of some of those needs. And like you said, um, we shouldn't be thinking of teams as necessarily rational actors. Um, there's a lot of decision-making that goes into how they think about selecting a player or not selecting a player. Whether Some teams, like you said, draft for need quite a lot. Some of them, they'll go where their board takes them. And so, you know, to me, I, I like to think that the draft is random enough that we shouldn't try to kind of enforce a rigid system on it to make it kind of bend to our will. Um, just like uh, putting a dam in front of a stream is going to kind of cause all this pent up, all these other things. Like, let's let it go. Let's let the data tell us what it is. Let's let the, the mocks kind of flow and, and tell us how things are going to, going to sit up. And hopefully they're mostly right. This has been excellent. I just wanted to say thank you very much. I can't wait to look into this even more. And uh, 
especially when you start, if you start adding some more of the historical context, that's just awesome. Thank you. Um, final question uh, for me is going to be the from now forward uh, for so for folks checking it out, uh, they want to see what their team's doing, but they also want to see, you know, like I, I do, you know, the positional trends, you know, where are our teams moving, where are player moving for the last three, four weeks here? Um, is there is there some tips? Is there some uh, other part of the site that we haven't mentioned on the show that you'd want to highlight as well for, hey, here's something fun. You know, here's another way to look at it uh, that would be instructional and, and beneficial uh, for folks and entertaining as well. Um, going here and, and just, again, about the draft that we all know and love as one of those pinnacle moments in the, uh, the NFL offseason calendar. Um, not too much. Um, you know, I just put up a uh, this past week a horizontal board. So, you know, the regular tabular data is just, you know, a long structured data, but teams will also set up vertical or horizontal boards, basically. And so what that does is it kind of takes it and short sorts the players by position. Um, I think it's like kind of a neat way of just kind of visualizing the class a little bit better. And that's kind of what the teams do. And so that's how it's easy to tell that there are 12 wide receivers right now with expected draft positions in the fifth round, for example. Um, so I enjoyed I enjoyed that. It's kind of a different way of looking at the draft, I think, than most people do. Uh, but it's kind of cool. Uh, it's not necessarily a lot of uh, trend stuff going on in there. But if you wanted a quick look at players and just kind of how it how a, each position group kind of sorts out right now, that's a really easy way to kind of go and look at it across the classes of data that I have. Okay. And uh, it's grindingthemocks.com uh, is where they can find you. It's right there on your, your Twitter page, which is uh, Benj underscore Robinson uh, on Twitter. So again, you follow you follow him. You're going to get all the updates there. You can click right through. You can bookmark it as Katie did uh, you know, recently because it, you know, it's our place to go. Um, is there any... Do you have any macro plans? Uh, you know, I know you, you've mentioned a couple of times, this was a curiosity for you. Uh, if you like look ahead and, um, you know, whether it's a pie in the sky or sort of a, hey, we continue to progress every single year. It's been three years and we know how projects go. They evolve and they sort of grow a life of their own sometimes. Is there something you kind of look ahead to 2023, 2025 and you're like, I could see it going in this direction beyond some of the, the little tea leaves you've mentioned? You know, I think getting into some of the player evaluation is something I'm interested in a little bit, kind of using this data to kind of see what we can tell about players. You know, by then, you know, by 2023, we'll have three years of data for a bunch of the classes. And so right now there's, I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, I think there's some interesting insights to be found, not that I would necessarily trust them as very valid. Uh, the more data I'll have collected now then in the future, we'll have outcome data to pair with it the more I think you can learn about some of those questions about, hey, are players who have this late rise up the process, how do they look like um, in terms of their uh, production in the league? Um, but uh, yeah, so in, in mix of that as well is kind of uh, taking those draft curves and kind of clustering those players. So you can find a players that have kind of the similar process in the data and see what happens to them. Um, but yeah, to me, it's going to kind of be a little bit more of looking at the outcome data and seeing if that's an extra piece in the puzzle that tells us anything at all about this kind of very random and very uncertain process that is the draft. Well, thanks again to Benjamin Robinson coming on the show. I mentioned uh, grinding the mocks, I would say at least a couple times a week on the various podcasts I record, uh, whether it's weekly or the premium shows. Uh, you can get all that at UTS9SD.com. Uh, if you want to support the show with no ads coming on this weekly show, that is patreon.com slash UTH as well. We got Tim Torch doing a weekly feature show. 
and uh, all that good stuff leading up to the draft. As I mentioned, big thanks. You can find him at uh, Benj underscore Robinson. And of course, one more time with grinding the mock dot grinding the mock, excuse me, dot com. She is Katie Flower at FF underscore Skyler 399. I'm at Chad Parsons NFL. And until next time, never settle, refuse to be average and keep holding those that is.